hear the Word of God and to behold His glory. So let's do that now. Let's go to Him in prayer and ask for His blessing as we open the Scripture this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered together as a church again, gathered under heaven, gathered in the presence of God, to lift up our voices and sing, to fellowship, to take the sacraments that You've left for the church, and the most important part is to hear from heaven through the Scripture, to hear the Word of God, to understand the mind of God. What a wonderful reality that we as believers have the mind of Christ. You have given us Your Spirit. You've given us Your Word. All of those glorious things that You have planned for us have been made known to us through the Spirit, through the Scripture. And we're so grateful for that. We're thankful that we love You. We know that's a gift of Your grace. Cursed is everyone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. And if it was not for Your grace, if it was not for the fact that You first loved us, we would never love You. We love You solely by grace. We love You because You opened our blinded eyes to the beauty and glory of Jesus. We love You because heaven came down and glory filled our soul. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. We were hopeless. We were without God in the world, cut off from the life of God. And in our hopelessness and helplessness, You came to us and made us alive with Christ. And we're so grateful that You are a God that does that. We're so grateful that salvation begins and ends with God, not our effort, not our will. We know that none seek for God, the Scripture says. No one seeks for God. All false religion is man's attempt to escape God, not find God. Anyone who finds God finds Him because you found them. And we're so thankful that you found us, that you've gathered us together as the ecclesia, the church, the assembly of redeemed, called out of darkness, called out of the world, called together to worship God. And now we seek to do that by hearing from you. We pray that as we open the Scripture, You would help us to understand the truth. I pray that You would give me grace and wisdom to teach Your Word with clarity, with precision, with accuracy, and that Your Word would be used this morning to build up Your people. And we pray, Lord, that each person here this morning, Lord, I don't know where everyone's at. Some people perhaps are here. They don't know Christ. Others do know Him. I pray for those who do not know Christ. They would be drawn into fellowship with Him. And for those of us who do know Him, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So be with us now, we pray, for Your glory. Amen. Alright, well if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. As we continue to make our way slowly but surely through John's first letter. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are as a church committed to what's called expository preaching. We preach through books of the Bible chapter by chapter verse by verse, word by word. And this morning is going to be more like word by word. We're going to go really slowly, but I think there's some rich truth here for us this morning. So 1 John chapter 3, in the passage that we are considering, we began looking at last week, we'll continue to look at this morning, is verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. I've entitled the message, The Test of Righteousness, Part 2. The Test of Righteousness, Part 2. That's John's concern. He's focusing here on the moral test. The moral test. Uh, You know that his overall theme is Christian assurance. Christian assurance. There were false teachers in Asia Minor who were seeking to deceive the believers there uh, with a counterfeit version of Christianity. 
a counterfeit version of Christianity. And as you well know, the most dangerous form of false teaching is exactly that. It's teaching that comes under the guise and label of Christianity, but denies essential truths concerning Christ and the Gospel. They're so dangerous because they seem like the real thing, only to be a poor substitute that delivers nothing but judgment and not salvation. John knew that. And so John wanted his flock, his beloved flock, his children as he often refers to them, he wanted them to be able to distinguish between the truth and error. The truth and error. These false, false teachers were denying the fundamentals of the faith. They were denying the basic elements of true Christianity. And so John here just reaffirms and re-emphasizes the ABCs of biblical Christianity. And so he wrote the letter to affirm the truth up against the errors of false teachers. 1 John 2.26, he says, I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The false teachers were trying to deceive them. And so he wrote this letter as a series of tests by which you can differentiate between true Christianity and false Christianity. A series of tests by which you can distinguish between a true believer and a false believer. A series of tests by which you can come to have assurance of your salvation. That's obviously very important. In our culture, you know, 60, 70, 80% of people profess to be Christian. Profess to be Christian. The problem is, if you look at their life, if you look at their belief system, you'll find that that's not really the case. We know what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says he's going to heaven is going to make it. Not everyone who thinks he's headed for glory will get there. Not everyone who says he's a Christian is a Christian. So the question is, how do you know you're a Christian? How can I know I'm a Christian? How can we know that we are true believers? John helps us with that by giving us a series of tests that will affirm for us the validity or lack thereof of our salvation. And so there are three tests, as you know. Uh, there is a theological test. There is a behavioral test, and there is a relational test. A theological test, behavioral test, and a relational test. Theologically, Christians believe the truth. Behaviorally, they obey the truth. Relationally, they love in truth. Those are the marks of a true Christian. And so there are doctrinal tests, moral tests, and social tests. And here, John, again, is focusing on the behavioral test, the moral test. Essentially, what John is saying in this portion of 1 John is that being a child of God radically affects your behavior. It radically affects the way you live your life. Let me read the verses to you once again. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. John says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, 
and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There were many battles that the apostles had to fight in the first century. There were many errors that crept in very early in church history. There were seemingly heretics on every side. And those errors had to be refuted. Those errors had to be combated. The apostles knew that. The gospel not only needs to be preached and clarified and explained, but it needs to be defended. And the apostles fought many battles. The the battle that the Apostle Paul primarily fought was a battle against legalism. battle against legalism. And he fought that battle against a group we've come to know as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jews who professed faith in Jesus as Messiah, but they taught that salvation was not by faith alone, it was by faith and works. For you to get in the kingdom, they said, you have to believe in Christ, but you also have to be circumcised and adhere to the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic Law. In other words, you had to enter in through Judaism first. You had to become a Jew, and then you could become a Christian, and then you still had to observe these ceremonies and rituals that made up Jewish life. That is, as Paul says in Galatians 1, a false gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. It is a damning gospel, a deviant gospel, that damns all who believe it to eternal judgment. And Paul spent much of his ministry and life battling against that lie. You can read about his refutation of legalism in the book of Galatians if you'd like. But the other major battle that the early church fought was a battle against the opposite extreme, and that is the lie of antinomianism. Antinomianism. Antinomianism comes from two Greek words. The word anti, which means against, and the word nomos, which means law. Literally, antinomians are those who are against the law. Those who say, you don't have to obey God's moral law. You can live any way you want and still have assurance of eternal life because you have maybe accepted Jesus in your life or invited Christ into your heart. It is a disregard for the law of God. And both of those heretical notions are still around today. Heresy never dies. It always comes back. It always circles back around. That's what makes church history so important, by the way. You read church history and you think, wow, oh, that heretic stuff is still going on today. That's still happening today. The heresy never dies. It always comes back. Satan always re-energizes old, old error and he presents it as new truth. That's what Satan does. And antinomianism and legalism both still exist. There are many legalist groups today, but the most predominant legalistic group is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches salvation is not by faith alone, salvation is by faith and works. Faith and works. In fact, this is what their catechism says, and I'll quote it very specifically for you. All men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Faith, baptism, and keeping the law. That is a false gospel. A gospel just as destructive and deceptive as the gospel being preached by the Judaizers in the first century. So the damning lie of legalism still exists today. But antinomianism is also still around today. That lie is very pervasive in our culture, especially if you go down south to the Bible Belt. 
But all over America in the world, there is this idea that you can be assured of your salvation, you can be guaranteed in heaven, and yet live any way you want and still have all the assurance in the world. Confidence in eternal life while living even like the devil. That is a dangerous, dangerous lie. The lie is basically all that you have to do to get into the kingdom of God is agree with biblical truth. All you have to do is give mere intellectual assent, intellectual agreement, verbal profession of the truth, and then you're in the kingdom. It doesn't matter how you live your life. If someone tries to question your salvation, all you have to do is take them back to that day that you accepted Christ into your life. All you got to do is walk an owl. All you got to do is pray a prayer. All you got to do is quote unquote accept Jesus in my heart. By the way, that phraseology that's common in modern evangelicalism is nowhere in the New Testament. Foreign to the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles never taught people that they could be saved by simply inviting Christ into their life. You don't find that language in the Bible. The gospel call is a call to self denial, it's a call to repentance and faith. And salvation always affects the way we live our life. But antinomianism lies and says you can have assurance while living in constant sin. That's a damning lie. It pervades much of modern evangelical Christianity today. Some of them even go so far as to say, after your initial profession, you can then renounce Christ, apostatize, go back to the world, become an atheist, and yet you're still saved and still going to heaven because there was a point in time in your life when you asked Jesus into your heart. That damning lie is very pervasive today. But the Apostle John also dealt with that in his day, a form of that. I told you before, the false teachers were basically proto-Gnostics. They held to a form of philosophical dualism. They taught that matter is evil, but spirit is good. Matter is evil, spirit is good. So what I do with my body doesn't matter. I have attained this secret mystical knowledge that everyone else hasn't. My spirit is pure. What I do with my body doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. Sin is just my body running its natural course. The goal of salvation in that system is to be totally freed from the body. The body's the problem. The body's the problem. So when I sin, it's not even me doing it. My body did it. My spirit is pure. This would lead them to both indulge in sin while denying they even had sin. They would indulge in it and yet deny it. That's why you go back to 1 John 1 and he says, look, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Because that's what the heretics were doing. And then you get to chapter 3 and he deals with practicing sin because the heretics were also doing that. They denied it and yet lived in it. They taught that you could have assurance while living in sin. And John says, no. No, that's not the case. In fact, the whole point of this passage is simply this. True Christians cannot live in sin. True Christians cannot live in sin. Look at verse 6. John says, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse 8 adds, The one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin and he cannot sin. That is to say, true Christians cannot live in sin. Verse 10 really the key verse here. John says, By this the children of God 
and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The true believer, the true child of God, is characterized by righteousness. Negatively, he does not practice sin. Positively, he does practice righteousness. He obeys the law of God. He obeys the law of God. True Christians cannot live in sin. Now again, is John saying true Christians never sin? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying they're sinless? Of course not. Of course not. Back in chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we're lying and deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John knew that true Christians sin. The true Christian does sin. The key then is found in the tenses that John uses throughout this passage. It's always in the present tense. It's always in the present tense. I told you that that word practices there translates the word poieo, and it's always in the present tense. It denotes continuous action. It's a habitual pattern of life. John is saying true Christians do not continue in sin as the dominant characteristic and the habitual pattern of their life. John Gill was right when he said that this word here designs a course of sinning, a willful, obstinate, persisting in sin. No true Christian can live his life that way. And in this text, John provides for us four reasons that that's the case. Four reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin. We looked at the first two last week. We're going to finish looking at the second one this morning. And next week we'll look at the final two reasons. But four reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin. The first one is simply this. True Christians cannot live in sin because sin is contrary to the law of Christ. Sin is contrary to the law of Christ. We saw that last week. Look at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. There is a basic definition of sin. What is sin? Sin's not oopsie-daisy. Sin's not an accident. Sin's not good people making mistakes. Sin is the breaking of God's law. It's rebellion. It's cosmic treason. Sin is breaking God's law. And true believers can't live in sin because they love God's law. They have the law of God written in their heart. They know it. They love it. They delight in it. And therefore, by the work of the Spirit, they obey it as a pattern of life. I told you last week, to live in sin is to live like a practical atheist. To live in sin is to live like a practical atheist. It is to live as if though there is no law to abide by, and therefore like there is no God who gave that law. It's to live as if I'm God. I'm the lawgiver and judge. I'm the one who arbitrarily determines what's right, what's wrong. I can do whatever I want. That is to live like a practical atheist. And no true Christian can live in sin because sin is contrary to the law of Christ. And we talked about that last week. But secondly, not only is sin contrary to the law of Christ, but it's contrary to the work of Christ. Sin is contrary to the work of Christ. Look at verse 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. He appeared. Christ appeared. Phanarao. He was made visible made known, made manifest in the flesh as a real man, and the purpose of His appearing, the purpose of His incarnation, the purpose of His coming into the world, 
was to take away sins. To take away sins. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus bore our guilt. He bore the judgment of God, the punishment for our sin. And therefore, our guilt is removed. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sin. And we get that. Typically, when we talk about salvation, that's what we mean. We mean my sins are forgiven. I'm right with God by faith in Christ. And that is a very important aspect of salvation. But that's not all that salvation includes. And John means more than Jesus just took away the penalty for our sin. Jesus also took away the power of our sin. Jesus died to take away the power of our sin. We looked at Romans 6 last time. Paul says, basically, by virtue of our union with Christ and His work on the cross, we've died with Him, we were buried with Him, we were raised with Him, and therefore sin no longer has power over us. It's still present within us. We still deal with sin, but it no longer dominates us because we have new life. Jesus came to take away sin, its penalty, and its power. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, put it this way, John means in this place that Christ really, and so to speak, actually takes away sins. Because through Him our old man is crucified, and His Spirit by means of repentance mortifies the flesh with all its lust. Then he adds, For the context does not allow us to explain this of the remission of sins. In other words, John's not just talking about forgiveness. For, as I've said, he thus reasons, they who cease not to sin render void the benefits derived from Christ since He came to destroy the reigning power of sin. Calvin was exactly right. This isn't just about forgiveness. Jesus came to destroy sin. To take away not only its penalty, not only the punishment, not only the consequence of sin, but even its dominating and slaving power over us. Sin is dethroned. And once it reigned in our hearts, now Christ reigns, grace reigns, the Word of God reigns, and therefore obedience is the result. To live in sin, then, as a professing Christian, is a contradiction. It's inconsistent with our profession. Imagine saying, look, Christ came to take away sins. Christ took away my sins, but I still live in them. To say that the work of Christ applies to me, but I'm still indulging in the very sins He came to take away and destroy. That is an utter contradiction. It is to say then that the work of Christ is ineffectual. The work of Christ wasn't enough. The work of Christ didn't do its work. It was ineffectual. It is essentially to nullify the cross. To live in sin as a professing Christian is to negate the cross. To negate the work of Christ. But in reality, Christ's work did exactly what it was intended to do. Christ gave Himself for us. He took our sins away. And therefore, in the lives of true believers, you see that daily reality because sin is being overcome. He's destroyed the power of sin. And He could do this because verse 5 says, the end, and in Him there is no sin. In Him there is no sin. He's a sinless Savior, and therefore He's a sufficient Savior. He's a sinless substitute, therefore He's a sufficient substitute who effectually takes away our sins. The world 
should not be able to look at us and say, hey, their Savior died for them, took away their sins, and yet they're still given over to drugs and alcohol and immorality and adultery and divorce and so on and so forth. They shouldn't look at us and see that. That world should look at us and see that the work of Christ has done exactly what it was supposed to do. It makes people holy. makes us holy. In other words, there is a sanctifying element to the work of the cross. There's a sanctifying element to the work of the cross. Ephesians 5 says that Christ gave Himself for the church so that He might sanctify her. Jesus died not just for your justification, but for your sanctification. Jesus died not just to forgive you of sin, but to give you victory in this life over sin, to make you holy, to set you apart from sin. 2 Peter 2.24 puts it this way, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, we can't stop there, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died for you that you might live for Him. And His work accomplishes exactly that. Titus 2.14 put it this way, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what the work of Christ does. Purifies the people of God and makes them zealous to do the works of God, to do good deeds. So Christ came to take away sin, its penalty, and its power. But John makes this point again in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. After saying, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, John then adds, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came into the world as a man through incarnation, and He did it to destroy the works of the devil. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that He destroyed the works of the devil? It means exactly what verse 5 says it means. It means He came to take away sin and to destroy the one in whom sin originated, namely, the devil himself. So the Gospel then provides victory over sin and over Satan. Christ came to destroy him. Now the word destroy here, the Greek word luo, it uh, means to loose, means to release, to cancel out, to annul. It's used various ways in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus says, Whatever you have loosed on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's used in Matthew 21, 2 to refer to untying a donkey. It's used in Revelation 1, 5, where Jesus says, or John says, He released us from our sins by His blood. It's the word released there. So it has the idea of loosing or releasing. But it also means to destroy. It's used that way in John chapter 2. Jesus uses the word and says, destroy this temple, referring to His body. So it means then, to destroy by loosing or releasing. To destroy by loosing or releasing. So what does John mean then? What does it mean that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil? It means that Christ, via His death and resurrection, has loosened us from sin and Satan's grip. It means that through the work of Christ, we are freed from slavery to Satan. Slavery to Satan. Satan is no longer our master. 
as He was before we were converted. We are now slaves of God, slaves of Christ, and slaves of righteousness. No longer slaves of Satan. Scripture is clear, by the way, that prior to conversion, that's what you were. You were a slave to Satan. If you're here today and you're not a believer, that's what you are. You're a slave of the devil. Scripture calls him in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world. God of this world. In Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. John 12.31 says he's the ruler of this world. That is to say, he is the one who rules the system of evil within God's created world. That's what the word world means, cosmos. It means a system or order. The system of evil within God's created order is ruled by Satan. Jesus is Lord of all. God rules over the earth. But the system of evil in the world, Satan is the head of that evil system. Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Every unbeliever in his natural fallen condition is under the dominion of sin and the slavery of the devil, their father. 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 and 26 describe conversion like this. Paul says, With gentleness we must correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, and watch this, and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That is what takes place at conversion. Before conversion, you're held captive to Satan. You're under his influence. You're enslaved to him to do his works, do his will. But at conversion, you are liberated from that slavery so that the works of the devil are destroyed in your life. Christ frees us from the works of the devil. The works of the devil. Now, what are his works? What are his works? Surely a lot could fall under that category. But in a nutshell, it's sin, evil, lawlessness. That's why John goes on and says right after that, verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because Christ destroyed the works of the devil. The works of the devil are sin. Christ destroyed them. And therefore, if you're a believer, you can't practice the works of the devil anymore. Lest you say the work of Christ didn't do what it was supposed to do. Lest you say Christ is a Savior who failed at His job. Lest you say He was a failure. So we are liberated from the devil's power. The very first revelation of the Gospel, by the way, emphasizes that exact point. That we are freed from Satan's dominion and have victory over him. Genesis chapter 3, one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible There in verse 15, as God is pronouncing curses on all involved with the first sin, the man, the woman, the serpent, listen to what He says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. So here, in the midst of the darkness of the fall, we see a great light. We see a great light. Light. God is going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, certainly that refers to enmity between God's children and the devil's children. That's true. We see that. But the specific enmity that God has in mind here is an enmity between Christ, the seed of the woman, and Satan, 
the devil, the serpent. Christ is going to gain victory over him. Jesus is the seed of the woman. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, here is Christ in the Old Testament, in prophecy and promise, the seed of the woman. And it's amazing because what should have happened the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned? What should have happened? Should have died. What does it say? The day you eat off the tree, you shall what? Surely die. And they did die. They died spiritually, no doubt about that, right? God told the truth. But they deserve that very moment to be damned forever. They deserve that very moment to be consigned to eternal hell. But God was merciful. And instead of dying physically and eternally immediately, God promises them a posterity, a seed, a group of descendants. Eve is going to live on. She's going to have a posterity that comes from her womb, and there's a specific seed of the woman that's going to come from her who's going to be the champion. He's going to be the the, the deliverer, the redeemer, the one who's going to gain victory over their arch enemy, the devil. It says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. When did that happen? When did that happen? At the cross. At the cross. At the cross, Jesus died for sin. That was a minor blow to His heel by the devil in sin. At the resurrection, Christ crushed the head of the serpent, delivered a fatal blow to His head, so that He's now a defeated foe whose time is short and whose end and destruction is near. Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death at the cross. Jesus brings us where Adam failed to bring us, The first man sinned, the second man comes and delivers men from sin by crushing the enemy, the devil. John 12.31 says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, at the cross, through the death and resurrection of Christ, it is as if Satan has been dethroned. It's as if he's been defeated and now his power and his Tyranny is being weakened and deadened slowly, but surely God's people have been loosed from His grip. Jesus purchased our salvation. He overcame death. That's the greatest tool that Satan has is sin and death. Jesus overcame both of them on the cross. The writer of Hebrews also comments on this reality of victory over Satan. Chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that is to say Christ became a man, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus frees us from sin, slavery, and death. Death is crushed to death. Death is defeated by death and by resurrection through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has destroyed the works of the devil. Now, does that mean that Satan is totally destroyed? Totally wiped out? Does that mean he doesn't operate anymore? Does that mean he's gone and we don't have to deal with him? Of course not. Of course not. Listen to what Romans 16.20 says. And note that this is after the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul says, the God of peace will soon, future tense, crush Satan under your feet. 
So has Satan been crushed already? Yes. Has he been totally crushed already? No. It's the already not yet tension in Scripture. Satan's been defeated, but the full expression of that victory awaits the second coming when Satan is consigned to eternal hell at the end. But until then, Satan does still run rampant in the world. He does still influence sinners, and we still have to be on the alert against him. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We still face temptation. We still face his influence. We still face his deceptions. But we can have victory over that because of the work of Christ. And our ultimate victory over him is guaranteed because of the work of Christ. We have victory over the devil because the purpose for which Christ came to die was not just forgiveness, but to destroy Satan's power over his people. So true Christians cannot live in sin because sin is contrary to the work of the Savior. So, what does it mean that he destroyed the works of the devil? It means he liberated us from his tyranny, from his influence, from his power. We're no longer held captive by him to do his will. His grip on us has been loosened, it has been released. We're freed from Him and now enslaved to God. <clears throat> In the work of the cross, by the way, it also guarantees the ultimate doom of Satan. The ultimate damnation of Satan. Revelation 20 verse 11 says that He is cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. That is His fate. But that's also the fate of all who belong to Him and all who do His works. The devil and all of his children will be destroyed and consigned to hell. We have victory over Him. But that does mean now we have victory. So even though we're waiting the final expression of that, here and now there are implications to that. If you are still living like the devil, it's because you belong to the devil. That's pretty obvious, right? Put two and two together. Basic, simple math. If you're of, if you're doing the works of the devil, you belong to the devil. <clears throat> but true believers have overcome his deception. We have, as John says earlier, overcome the evil one. You've overcome him. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but we do not. We do not. We're freed from that. We are, as Colossians 1.13 says, delivered out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, freed from Satan's kingdom, a citizen of God's kingdom. Daniel Aiken says this, Jesus delivered a knockout punch to the devil on the cross. And then he adds, an empty tomb is an eternal monument to his victory and to ours. The death and resurrection of Christ is our victory. Matthew Henry adds this, The devil has designed and endeavored to ruin the work of God in this world. That's the devil's desire. Destroy the work of God. But the Son of God, he says, has undertaken the holy war against him. Isn't that great? We don't have to be the ones that ultimately lead the battle. Christ destroys him. And we have victory in Christ. The Son of God has undertaken the holy war against him. He came into our world, was manifested in our flesh, 
that He might conquer him and dissolve his works. Sin will He loosen and dissolve more and more till He has quite destroyed it. Then He adds, Let us not serve or indulge what the Son of God came to destroy. Why would we do that? Why would we indulge in sin, the very sins that sent Christ to the cross, the very works that Christ came to destroy? Why would we want to live in those things? The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, and therefore true Christians cannot practice sin. So that's reason number two. We'll have to wait till next time to look at the other two reasons. Time fails us this morning. But as we close, let me say this. The only way for you to be freed from the power of sin and Satan is through faith in Jesus Christ. Through union with Christ. If you're not a believer, you are enslaved to Satan. You ever thought, why can't I overcome my sin? If you're an unbeliever, because you're enslaved to sin. You love sin. You belong to the kingdom of darkness and you're headed for destruction with the devil himself. All who do his works will be damned with him and have his same fate. So my plea to you today is if you're not a Christian, you would come to Christ. You would repent, believe upon Christ, that you might find true freedom and true liberation in Him. But if you are a professing believer, there's a warning to you as well. If you're a professing believer and your life is marked by ongoing, unrepentant, habitual sin, then you are not a true child of God. That is what the Scripture teaches unequivocally. If your life is marked by the works of the devil, then the works of the devil haven't been destroyed in your life. The work of Christ hasn't been applied to your heart and you're not a true believer. What you need to do then is you need to repent and believe. You need to come to Christ not for cheap grace, not for a get-out-of-hell-free card. You need to come in real, total surrender by faith and find true salvation in Christ. You need to surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. So all of us who profess the name of Christ must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. You can know you're a child of God because your life is marked by decreasing sin and increasing righteousness. Decreasing sin and increasing righteousness. Because Christ destroyed the works of the devil in your life. So if you are a believer, may that reality be lived out daily in your life. May your life be marked not by sin, but by righteousness for the glory of God. Next week, we'll look at the last two reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin. But for now, brothers and sisters, let us resolve for our own assurance to pursue righteousness in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its clarity, for its truth, for its simplicity. It makes it so clear. This is the difference. We don't have to wander around in darkness wondering how We can know if we're saved or not. The Scripture makes it crystal clear. The clear line of distinction is righteousness or sin. And we know that those who belong to You cannot sin habitually as the practice of their life because Jesus came to take away sin, destroy the works of the devil, and liberate us from its power. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We pray that You would help us to manifest that righteousness in our lives daily, increasingly, progressively by the work of the Spirit. We pray that sin would be weakened, mortified, subdued, overcome by us daily, that we would 
have increasing victory over Satan's works and we would manifest God's works. We know that you have predestined us for good works, Ephesians 2.10 says, and we pray that you would help us to walk in those works. Lord, keep us from both the damning lie of legalism and also the lie of antinomianism, easy believism. Lord, we know we're not saved by the law. We know obedience does not save us. Practicing righteousness never saves us. We can never be good enough. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But it is the practice of righteousness by the Spirit's work in our hearts that validates the reality of our faith and the reality of our salvation. So Lord, we pray that each of us would be able to look at our life and make our calling and election sure. We would be able to test ourselves with the Scripture and become to a full conviction that we are indeed in the faith. Or may it be. And for those here this morning who may not be in Christ, who are unconverted, our prayer is that their eyes would be open to behold the beauty of Christ. They would see the heinousness of their sin and rebellion. And you would draw them effectually into your kingdom for your glory. We pray these things to that end. Amen.